Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Consumer Review Report on Tube City Online Radio, a service of Tube City Online, Tube City Community Media, Inc., where we deal with consumer issues. This show is heard Sundays at 4 p.m., Tuesdays at 6 p.m., and Thursdays at 9 a.m., again on Tube City Online Radio. And if you can't catch our regularly scheduled shows, podcasts of these shows are available on wmck.fm slash crr, iTunes, Google, iHeart, Spotify, and Spreaker. Now, if you have any ideas of any products or services you would like to hear on the show, you can email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at Consumer Review Report and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. Also, if you have any questions or any comments on anything you've heard on the show, you can email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at Consumer Review Report and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. Today's show is dedicated to cars. I have audio from a YouTube Talking Cars video episode posted by Consumer Report magazine covering topics such as their Hyundai Elantra hybrid test results and their worst car buying experience. Right after that, we'll listen to audio from another video from YouTube posted by CNBC called Why Car Buyers Are Ditching Dealerships for Online Sales. Perk your ears. Here we go. This week, we talk about our test results of the 2021 Hyundai Elantra Hybrid, discuss the details of the new crash test results from the IIHS, and share our worst car dealership experiences. Next, on Talking Cars. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. I'm John Lindrove. I'm Gabe Shenhar. And I'm Jennifer Stockberger. And as things change, we've got the changing leaves, the changing seasons, we've got the time change. We also have a change from the Insurance Institute of Highway Safety. And they came out with some news recently that automakers knew was happening, but they announced new crash tests, uh, a more advanced crash test uh, for their side impact safety. Um, The first round of this testing, they tested 20 small SUVs. And what was really interesting is that this new aggressive test only one, the Mazda CX-5, got a good rating. And two models, the Honda HRV and the Mitsubishi Eclipse Cross, actually earned a really low score of poor. Jen, can you tell us about this and, and why it's different than the current side crash test and, and what happened with all these vehicles? Yeah, so, so first of all, IHS has a long history of kind of advancing their crash test to the next level of safety. So recall they started with their moderate overlap frontal crash. Then a few years later, they added their side impact test. Then a few years later, they added the small overlap test. And they just keep inching away at the next thing that's causing, you know, fatalities and injuries and motor vehicle crashes. This case, they haven't added a new test, but they've modified the side impact test. And what they did is two things. One, they increased the energy a heavier barrier that goes at a higher speed to better simulate the larger vehicles that are on our roads and in real world crashes and in their own research, vehicle to vehicle crashes. They also noted that when SUVs or trucks are hitting other vehicles, the shape 
of that. The vehicle kind of wraps around the B pillar and there was actually more intrusion on the front and rear doors than their current side impact test was showing. So they modified that barrier. More energy, more representative of current vehicle deformation, and it's proven challenging, as most times it does. When they change something, the expectation is that not all vehicles will do well, and that's by intention. Again, this is a consumer information program. This is not a pass or fail vehicle safety standard like we'd have from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. This is meant to inform consumers like you and I which vehicles are doing better. They increased the energy on that side impact test by 82%. That's a huge increase. We don't expect all vehicles to do well. And I want people to understand that, you know, say you're in the HRV or the Eclipse Cross, you're driving it today. Just adding this test doesn't make your vehicle that you're driving today unsafe. It just means there's a new test the next time that anybody goes to buy a small SUV, in this case, they tested 20, they have some another piece of information to determine which vehicles are more likely to protect them in a side impact crash. The old tests, their estimates are that a vehicle that scored a good versus a poor, the driver was 70% less likely to die than in one with a poor rating versus a good rating. So it has impact. It has real world. Again, a differentiator for buying new. Don't panic if you see marginal or poor on a vehicle that you currently own. So in, in a way, it's, it's advancing the market and, and pushing manufacturers, right, Gabe? Because we've seen this in, in, in the past with, with other crash tests, like Jen alluded to, with, uh, with some Toyotas, right? Absolutely. And it's really interesting when you look at the ranking of all the 20 cars, and uh, it's pretty clear that uh, whichever model was uh, more recently design, redesigned, it does better uh, with a couple of uh, surprises. But uh, for instance, the, uh, the Honda HRV, that, uh, that car is, is long in the tooth. It's about to be redesigned. And, uh, and manufacturers uh, had a couple of years of uh, heads up on, on that upcoming uh, standard. So they were, um, they were, they were not caught off guard here. And, uh, and it's pretty, uh, pretty safe bet, uh, that, uh, the next, uh, generation of the Honda HRV is going to be designed with that, uh, new test in mind. Yeah. And even IHS, they don't make it a requirement yet for their top safety pick. They know it's new. They know it's challenging. So, so they will wait till more and more cars do better before making it, you know, a prerequisite for some of their higher awards, if you will. It's nice to see that the the Mazda CX-5, which does well in our testing as well, is uh, stands out in this test. What I want to throw out to both of you is that some some uh, viewers, some listeners may say, well, look, last time this happened, you dropped recommendations, you, uh, you know, you, you pulled them back. You then also said, well, we'll wait and see. What's going to be the CR policy on incorporating this test? Where is that going to lead us? Yeah, so we have certainly said the words critical mass. We wait until there's enough vehicles that have been tested through this program. Um, and to Gabe's point, enough time for manufacturers to tweak designs to improve their performance before making it a requirement um, for either our recommendation or theirs. You know, so, so not yet. We certainly will watch it. It's certainly a piece of information for people buying new, but 
not yet something we will make a requirement for our recommendation or our topics coming early next year. Yeah. Uh, for now, the IHS uh, has only done uh, a group of small SUVs, and we'll see uh, other uh, vehicle categories and how they do. I mean, you can only know what you know. You don't know what you don't know. So when they start uh, uh, doing the, the, the same test uh, for sedans, uh, let's see what happens then. And, you know, just like Jen said, uh, as soon as we have a critical mass and we, we see a, a broad picture here, then, then we can uh, figure out how to uh, move forward in turn and how it affects recommendations for us. Well, there's a full report on this on consumerreports.org, story covering it, covering the results, um, and some, some quotes from, from CR experts on it. So check that out. That's going to move us to Car of the Week, our, our segment on what we've got in the fleet. And, you know, just like all of you, uh, we're finding a really, you know, a, a hard time with cars, getting vehicles in. Um, we're affected by the supply chain, um, just like everyone who's buying a car. Uh, if, if you look at the list, our internal list of vehicles we have coming in, you know, they're all, there's so many of them that are in the build process. They're, they went into, into the build in October, and maybe they went into the build even in September. So we're waiting. This week's we're going to go with one that's been online for a little bit. It's the Hyundai Elantra Hybrid. Uh, so it's a little little older in our test fleet, but we haven't discussed that. But what's really interesting is that it's part of Hyundai's big push with hybridization, and we'll get to that. The model that we tested was the 2021 Hyundai Elantra Hybrid Blue, 1.6 liter four-cylinder, 240-volt lithium-ion battery system with a hybrid starter generator, six-speed dual-clutch automatic, $23,550 was the MSRP, and the $190 for cargo carrying equipment, $155 for carpeted floor mats, and it comes out to $24,900, which includes the $1,005 destination charge. Um, I, I found it really interesting that the Elantra SEL we tested cost $23,000 out the door. We added some packages to it to, to bring in some safety equipment. But if you look at the EPA numbers between the two cars, I know different testing than what we do, but it's sticker to sticker. The hybrid will cost $750 a year to go 1,500 miles. The non-hybrid, $1,150. So the EPA payoff time is five years for that $2,000 rough difference. So Gabe, you know, we've had two Elantras, a regular SEL, then we have the hybrid that we tested. You know, what does the hybrid bring to it? Um, and then also what's Hyundai been doing with, with their other hybrid uh, vehicles since they've been hybridization, hybridizing, hybridizing their lineup, uh, you know, extensively for for, the, for this model year. Yeah, uh, well, let's start with the uh, Elantra Hybrid, uh, which is kind of like an under the radar kind of car. I don't, it's quieter than the regular Elantra. It uh, also uh, is able to propel itself solely on electric power in very low speeds on low throttle. Uh, which really works well in an urban kind of situation uh, when you drive up to like 25, 30 miles per hour and on electric only. And not many people will realize that the hybrid comes with a different rear suspension and uh, it's an independent rear suspension as opposed to a, a straight beam for the regular Elantra. And that contributes to uh, better handling and uh, better ride comfort. Uh, the car just absorbs bumps uh, better than the regular Elantra. And you already mentioned the price difference. Uh, price difference is not uh, so significant between the regular and the hybrid Elantra. So it's just a win-win. Now, uh, let me continue with the, with the Tucson and Santa Fe hybrids. And in those two cases, we tested the two Tucsons, of course. Uh, the regular one gets uh, something like 26 miles per gallon. 
which is okay, but the hybrid gets 35 miles per gallon. It has a longer driving range, and uh, it's quicker, and it's quieter, and uh, just all around a better car. The same goes for Santa Fe. So in our mind, unequivocally, uh, the Tucson and Santa Fe hybrids are superior vehicles to their regular ones. So it uh, it really uh, <clears throat> makes a lot of sense for a lot of people. You know, Jen, this this hybrid performs better, feels better, is better, is nicer, isn't just exclusive to Hyundai, though, because that's been kind of a trend, almost reversing the way it used to be with, with early hybrids, right? Yeah, so, so it's, it, I think we've gotten rid of the quirkies, the quirkinesses of some of the hybrids. You know, the early, early hybrids, you know, you had all the CBT noise, you had the, the goofy regen, pedal feel, you had all of that. They've gotten so much better. So, and to Gabe's point, in most cases, not all, hybridization, particularly with a small displacement engine, tends to make it a nicer car. It it, quiets it down. It gives you better, smoother power delivery. Even if the numbers, in this case, even if the numbers don't say it's quicker, it's the way the power gets delivered. It's a bit more linear, a bit more... um, a bit less, I should say, a bit less disconcerting when you're off the line. It feels a little better. So, and I love that we're talking about this car that is sub $25,000 because we're always talking about high-end and high-tech because that's the new stuff. But I love that we have this car, hybrid. I mean, I, I, this morning I was out with gas at $3.65 this morning. That's what I saw. It's really satisfying when you're looking at a version of this inexpensive Elantra that's, you know, not to give too much weight, 15 miles per gallon better than the gas, than the purely gas version. Right. Um, that's a lot of range and convenience of maybe you stop twice a week instead of three times a week. Certainly. Maybe you go that much further between Phillips. Those are some very nice conveniences. Now, I will say this hybridization didn't take away all the noise. This is a kind of a noisy car. Um, there's there's engine noise and there's quite a bit of road noise from this car that no hybrids just going to fix that. Maybe a tire change might, but it's kind of a noisy vehicle. So you, you do have to work around that. But combined with the, the hybridization and the gas or the fuel economy, lots of safety at sub $25,000. Standard for a collision warning, automatic emergency braking with pedestrian detection, standard lane departure warning and lane keeping assist, even the ability to tailor some of that. Like for your lane departure, you can shut off the audible part and just have the vibration if you don't want all your passengers hearing every time you cross a lane line. You know, things like that. Um, The basic interior, and I'll use that basic seat comfort, basic controls, somewhat uh, refreshing, if you will. Standard gear selector, pretty easy to navigate controls, touch screen, but easy to navigate screen. Um, so things like that, I, I think people will be happy if they're okay with a little bit of road noise and pretty much not a super generous seat and things like For that. For sure. It doesn't take away what a small car is. The small right. car is because of weight savings, because of just the investment, you know, the price point that they're they're going going to, you're not going to have it be silent inside. And with a hybrid, when you're when there's no engine noise masking the outside noise, you're going to hear that outside noise. Yeah. Um, but yes, it, you're not asking for a forty thousand dollar interior. 
because you're playing in the $20,000 space, but it still is quality feeling. It may not, it may be more plastic right. than soft touch or hard plastic than soft touch, but yeah, everything's at hand. It's a very nice vehicle to drive. The lack of the, having Hyundai not making it a luxury, a, a high price, four or five, six thousand dollar price point to get there, you know, really makes a selling point for this vehicle over, like you said, over the regular version. Um, blind spot warning standard on this right. one as well. So, you know, a very, very full, uh, a full complement of safety features. Um, yeah, in the context of small sedans that cost typically between twenty and twenty-four thousand uh, dollars, the Elantra Hybrid is just a very well-rounded uh, yep. kind of car. Yep, and, and with the the lack of popularity of, of small cars, cars in general, sedans in general, uh, you know, and we talk about this on other parts of, on other parts of ConsumerReports.org and, and maybe you know in other uh, other areas. Look, you may have your eye right now set in a tough buying market. I want an SUV. I, I want that Tucson or something. Okay, the Tucson's popular. You may you may need it, but if you don't necessarily need that SUV, especially if you're getting a front wheel drive SUV, look look at look at the look at a sedan like this. I mean, you may have a better chance of getting this than getting something else at the dealer. You know, if you need a new car, and right. it's going to save you a ton of money, especially like you said, you know, the gas price is so high. What a great car for a young driver. I mean, we'll wait and see what reliability turns out to be, but. A great car, great fuel economy. They don't have a lot of money to pump into the gas tank. Right. What a great car and full safety. Awesome. Is is Hyundai becoming the king of hybrids, Gabe? Well, uh, traditionally, it used to be Toyota and Ford were the real uh, leaders in, in hybrid. Now, Ford uh, still uh, has a really good escape hybrid. And Hyundai thinks that uh, hybrids are going to play a role uh, because uh, not everyone is ready to jump to an EV, and a hybrid is uh, just gets you great fuel economy, uh, long driving range, uh, ready to go at any time. It's certainly a, a very uh, a very practical uh, solution for a lot of people. Well, we've got uh, full test reports for all the vehicles we discussed, from the Ford Escape hybrid up to the Hyundai Elantra hybrid, and in between. So check that out on ConsumerReports.org. We're gonna bounce a little little segment here, uh, you know, kind of experiences that we've had um, in the buying process or just in car ownership. And this one, this week, we're going to talk about what each of us felt were our worst dealership experiences. Now, it's not to pick on dealers, but, you know, people are having, you know, a lot of interesting dealership experiences, particularly the last year. You have, can I go in with COVID? Can I only do it online? Do I do it outside? Uh, you know, now it's, you know, am I back in? Maybe we're, we're not at, we're not inside but the experience just isn't fun for people. And in fact, I, I remember writing a story that where the head of Hyundai at one point, John Kraftchik, I believe, said that the only thing worse than going to a dealership is getting a root canal. You know, that, that the people have equated dental visits with, with going to the car dealership. So, Jen, what is, has your, been your worst dealership experience uh, so far? So, so first of all, I'm going to say, and I've always said this, and you've probably heard me say it, I don't believe it's dealership. Experience, it's a salesperson experience because you can have a really crappy salesperson and a really great salesperson in the same dealership. And if you're really unhappy, ask for a different one, even if you're not altering the dealership. But I unfortunately had to narrow it down a little bit because I've certainly been in situations where they're like, don't you need to go home and ask your husband if you can? <laughs> not my favorite, but my worst one had to do with um, kind of that follow-up survey. You know, I've been at Consumers a long time, and it used to be you got an, um, 
a piece of mail that said, oh, please rate your dealership experience. Um, and I got the impression, Gabe, you'll have to win, that the dealerships get some kickback from having very, very high um, results on those series, on those surveys. Very, very good results. So I had, I was buying a vehicle and the, the salesperson actually was showing me the wrong vehicle. You know, we've always said we're very specific. Gabe gives us very specific specs in the vehicles we're buying for consumers reports. And they were showing me the wrong car. Like he pulled me in there, said, I got one on the lot for you. It was a total um, bait and switch gets me there. It's not even the right car. Eventually we get to the right car. And um, again, we, we're going in anonymous at this point. So at the end of the whole transaction, and I'm just frustrated, he slides across the table. Now it's all done by email. This survey and says, I hope you give me a good rating. It was pre-populated with all high marks. I said, I'm not, he goes, if you could just sign it, that'd be great. He had filled in his own check marks and wanted me to say, well, I'm not signing that. And he said, why not? And I said, because this was not a good dealership experience. And when I fill out the real one, you're going to hear about it. And then ultimately, it got even worse um, when we tell them at the very end that this car is for Consumer Reports. He says to me, if I had known you were from Consumer Reports, I would have treated you so much better. <laughs> I was just at a loss. Like, are you kidding me? You don't treat all of your potential customers well. It was it was my worst experience ever. He wasn't good at his job, and he was very entitled and felt he deserved this great survey regardless. It was horrible. And I don't think I ever went back to that um, dealership just because we bounce around, but he personally was probably the worst salesperson I've ever experienced. He probably wanted you to put your own stamp on it too, right? He wasn't going to give you the stamp. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> all right, Gabe. Up to you to top that one. What's your experience that you uh, you lie asleep and recounting? Oh, uh, there's no chance I can uh, top that one. (laughs) But uh, probably our experience buying cars at this point, I mean, we've got it down packed, uh, is not uh, so similar to a regular customer. But I can remember a few years ago, uh, I think I uh, ended up uh, taking over a a buying process from someone else. uh, And uh, that was a Ford Edge and... Uh, and the dealer didn't didn't even have the um, certificate of origin, which allows them to sell the car. So I had to get the car on a dealer plate. Uh, not only that, uh, the VIN number in the documents uh, was the wrong VIN number. Everything from there was just a disaster that required uh, you know some extra time at the DMV and. Um, and it was just not, uh, I mean, the whole dealership was just a very incompetent and uh, not, uh, <clears throat> not, not a great experience there. I think that your experience there really highlights the challenge that people face because we do this and it's almost automatic. You know, it's a process and it's all the paperwork and it's very rigid. They're, like you said, we bring the check. It can't be different than the check. We're not getting upsold. We're not adding. We're not, nothing that goes on there. But all, so for the, you know, the average buyer, making sure that there's not an error here or that they're not charging $5 extra. You have a lien fee on your, you know, that's actually incorporated into the registration fee, but they add the lien fee in as well. It's hard. It's really crazy. And when you're there and you want to just get the heck out of there, it's not, again, saying that all dealerships are evil, but it's very easy to miss something. And, And that's, 
you know, especially now if you're doing it all virtually and you're, and you're going back and forth and it's, you know, it's emailing attachments and stuff. It's a challenge. It really is a challenge. And our way is pretty easy because we pay, uh, we just write a check and uh, we're done. And that uh, without the whole complication of, uh, of uh, loans and financing or a lease, uh, which, you know, just uh, makes the whole thing a lot more complicated. Exactly. Interest rate bumping and such. So that's, that's, that's a challenge. I was I was going between two different ones, and I think that the key, the big, the bigger headache I had was more of just discuss it the way it was handled. Um, I was buying a Nissan, I was buying an Altima, and it was very popular. And there were there was a, you know, the way a lot of the cars roll out, they roll out you know some high level, high trim models at first, and of course we want to get an early one, but we're not buying the. 3.5 SR with the leather and, you know, the panoramic roof, you know, we're buying the one that's going to sell 1%. We're going to buy a, a regular, you know, a mid-level one that, that the regular consumer is going to buy in mass that they're planning to buy. So I found one at a dealership in Connecticut that had an amazing price. It, it was, it was, it was actually below MSRP and it was the end of the month that I thought, well, you know, maybe they want to, they want to get it out. And um, there weren't any incentives on or anything like that. So, paperwork and I verify, oh, it's a new car. Oh, it's a new car. Yeah. Okay. And it's, you know, it's on site. Yeah, it's on site. And here's a picture of it. And, and okay. And great. Send me all the information. And I said, um, you know, can, can you verify you know, the mileage that's on it when, you know, when delivered and such like, yeah, yeah, we'll get that. We'll get that. And they sent over the paperwork and I sent over the information from CR and then they said, oh, by the way, it was a demo and it's got 3,500 miles on it, but it was the sales manager's wife. So we'll see you later this afternoon. And they hung up the phone, literally hung up the phone on me. And of course, we're not going to buy a car that, that has anything besides just the delivery miles on it. And it was just that thing because, of course, I finally found the deal. And while there was the spidey sense going, ah, it's just not right. Too good to be true. You know, look, it was reasonably below MSRP in the sense of negotiations. Yeah. And, and it wasn't the COVID buying experience where it's 40% over, you know, it was 5%. And and that was a mess because I had already canceled two other orders. Yeah, you know, because you feel, not orders, but feel outs, you know. So I said the two other deals, oh, I'm not, I'm going in a different direction. So it taught me not to do that, to hold the other one, unfortunately. It's a little mean, but to make sure that the one goes before I cancel the others. Yeah. Um, and it's just an annoying, annoying experience. And I hear those commercials from that dealer, and I just cringe every time I hear them. I know. Yeah, just, just, uh, Go ahead, Kate. Just uh, one more thing before we change the subject here. Uh, we're, as we know, we're in a bit of a drought in terms of buying cars because of the chip shortage and, and whatnot. And uh, well, that also means that uh, we haven't been uh, so great on getting discounts on cars. Whereas uh, up until a few years ago, you'd be getting $1,500 off uh, the uh, list price right off the bat, uh, no, no sweat. Now uh, you'd be lucky to pay uh, the MSRP or the list price and not um, be charged uh, over sticker. Right. I mean, owner loyalty or conquest was always an option. I mean, for us, we have a, a lot of thirty or forty cars. We're, we're loyal owners. We're being conqu- or they're conquesting us no matter what. You just have to provide the registration proof. And yeah, those are gone. Any money on the hood's gone. You know, Jen, you were going to add something in. No, I was just going to say, you know, Gabe alluded, you both said it, you know, because we're desiring that car as soon as we can get it, we sometimes don't walk because we want the car and we're willing to go through the these horror stories. So, but still, if it's you, walk. If yeah. you don't like the person or the dealership, walk. And it's so, why you don't wait till the car, if right. you know your car's on, it's time to be replaced. Right. Don't wait till it 
dies in your driveway or dies at the dealer when you drive over to look and kick tires. It's 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 important to plan ahead. The flip side of it all is that uh, we our resale value on the cars is great. I mean, we're getting uh, great prices uh, on our used cars. Uh, yeah. For instance, uh, we sold the Rav Four after a year and a half of ownership for three hundred dollars less than <laughs> what we bought it for, which was amazing. Which is crazy. Which is crazy. Yeah. So when that guy said to me, "If you, if I knew you worked for Consumer Reports, I would have treated you better," and I should have said, "If I wasn't buying this for Consumer Reports, I would have walked out of here a long time ago." Definitely. That would have been my answer to him. Definitely. Well. Give us, give us some feedback and tell us in the comments below uh, what your experience has been or, or send it to us at talkingcarsatiCloud.com and uh, maybe it could be part of a, a viewer question, a listener question uh, session uh, in an upcoming episode. So we're just going to pause one second to talk about the Talking Cars donation program. Um, if you're not aware, Consumer Reports is a nonprofit organization and everything that we do is funded by memberships and donations. So if you're able to give, it really does help keep us do the work we do, including the show. So you can find more information about this at cr.org slash givetalkingcars. And so now we're going to move over to audience questions. As always, send us video or text questions, talkingcars at icloud.com, and uh, hopefully we'll get you on a future show. Our first epi- our first excuse me, question comes from Joel, who says, as Will Rogers once said, you never get a second chance to make a good first impression. To that point, not infrequently, CR will do a first impression review on a new car. After all these years and thousands of reviews, has CR ever substantially changed their thoughts on a car after these initial ones? If so, what car was it? What were the circumstances? So, Gabe, for for people who may or may not know, you know, how and why do we, you know, do these these first impression reviews? You know, with, you know, and, and do we end up ever switching, or do they do we change, and, and under what circumstances? So very often uh, we'll do a first drive on a new car that's uh, just just out and not even uh, before it even goes on sale. <clears throat> we'll um, rent slash borrow one from the manufacturer. I mean, we pay for these uh, loans uh, as opposed to other outlets. And uh, we'll get the car for a week or two and uh, we'll rotate it among uh, staff. Uh, one, uh, they'll will be a writer that uh, will uh, gather all of our collective thoughts. And, uh, and we, we kind of, uh, we know that this is just a, a little bit of a, a taste of uh, the car. And it's not going to be instead of the full instrumented road test that we're going to do that's based on our um, very own car that we will have purchased. It's very rare that we change, uh, we do like a full 180 degree uh uh, change of mind on a car, but uh, most recently we we drove the uh, we got the Honda Civic uh, this past summer. It was a touring uh, with a turbo engine and um, with all the sound deadening material. And when we got our own car, which was uh, the Sport, which is a more uh, more common trim line uh, without the turbo engine and without the sound deadening uh, insulation, the car made uh, not such a you know, not such a positive impression as the the car we borrowed. Jed, are there ones that you've thought of over time that that have fallen into that that category of like, yeah, it sounds great. Oh, the one we bought, not not quite on on what they delivered to us at first. Right, and I think the direction Gabe's talking about is typically where we would go, where the the rented vehicle will be better equipped, either by its trim line stuff we know. Or things we may not know that they've done to, you know, like sound deadening to make it just a better experience. The one I think of 
and we talked about it last week, is the Lexus NX. We just had the top top powertrain, non-hybrid powertrain, the top regular uh, powertrain. We had the F-Sport version, which brought nicer seats, probably better handling, you know, even controls and things like that. You get all the amenities in this rented vehicle. Will our impressions of the mainstream, whatever that might be, Lexus NX be the same? Probably not. Will probably be lower. I also think, you know, sometimes we have these rented vehicles for a pretty short period of time, depending on the popularity and where else they need to go. And not as many people get in them. So when we have our tested vehicle, now you have this whole jury of drivers with different preferences, different statures, all of that stuff that makes our uh, rating so comprehensive that the rented vehicle may not see. So typically we go down. Um, I, I can't think of one, Gabe or John, off the top of my head, where we've gotten the rented vehicle and then been actually much more pleased with the car we bought. Couldn't think of one in that direction. Yeah, I would have to go back and really... Yeah, really, really dig. dig through. Yeah. yeah, because rarely is the car that, that's provided a rental, you know, a, a base model or something, and we just happen to get one that is just nicer. So yeah, yeah. the only so, maybe is a sportier one that the ride got better. Because well, and the tires too. and that, that's yeah, the, the I, tire. I couldn't think of one. The tire feel, I think, is a key one also because many yeah. other publications will say, "Well, it looks great. It's got the big wheels and it fills out the wheel well." But yeah, the ride degradation is right. is is horrible. Yep. So, Joel, hope that answered your question. Uh, we're going to move to our next question from Erin, who says, In March 2020, after much re- research on Consumer Reports, I decided I would buy a Subaru Forester, but that didn't happen because of COVID. In the end, I will buy a car. It's just a matter of when. But in the news, I've heard it's not a great time to buy a car due to shortage of parts. Would you recommend buying a new Forester right now? Or wait, should I be concerned about part shortages impacting the quality and reliability of cars being made now? So, Jen, from the supplier side, you know, we're from your, your history, your your previous right. jobs, uh, does Aaron have concerns that are valid? Right. So, I, you know, and again, you're absolutely right. I was putting on my supplier hat. I used to work for a fuel system supplier. And, and we actually, I spent a lot of time on the production line. So, I I think, Aaron, I would be cautious. And, and I say that in, to me, the best running highest reliability quality production line is the one that's tuned in. You know, the people know what they're looking for. If it's a manual labor line, in a part line, um, there's a steady flow of, of parts that have been manufactured. When you start to talk about stops and starts and restarts on a production line or In another vein, there's typically an alternate supplier. Maybe the alternate supplier is just ramping up their production to cover. That's where some issues may arise. Again, the people aren't knowing necessarily. And it could be, you're talking fuel systems. It could be so simple as that O-ring doesn't look like it's seated quite right. You know, in our case, that was a fuel leak. You couldn't have those things. Um, So to me, there's risk in these stops and starts on these production lines. With that said, I think it's paramount, even more so than normal, to pick a manufacturer with good quality practices because those quality practices, checks and balances, checks along the line, um, sampling of parts, make um, even deviations in the production, they find them more quickly. They don't get out to the consumer. So 
you know, the, the, the manufacturers that have a really traditionally good reliability record, the Toyotas and the Aaron's case, the Subarus of the world are probably the better option. Um, and the Forester in particular, it has some some years that were not particularly great in terms of reliability, but the more recent ones have been very, very good. So when you combine Subaru with Forrester, you're probably fine, Aaron, just falling back on Subaru's reputation and reliability. But it's a caution. Maybe if you don't need that car right now, maybe give it a little bit. Yeah, I was going to say to Gabe, you know, is there other concerns that Aaron would have to have uh, with the buying of, of maybe not being satisfied with everything that's available. Well, this is uh, in general, and not specifically uh, for the Forester. Uh, there are, uh, you know, because there are dozens of chips and microchips in uh, every car, uh, there are some cars that uh, not only are delayed, but cars that come with uh, missing features. Like, uh, for instance, BMW announced that uh, they're not going to have uh, wireless charging pads for uh, many of or some of their models because of the, the shortage. So uh, yeah, make sure you you know that coming in uh, just to to avoid surprises later. Well, on that, I hope uh, Aaron, you get what you want. Let us know. Let us know the buying process, yeah. um, but also let us know if it's if it's delayed or anything like that. Tell us tell us your experience. We'd like to like to hear a follow up. So it brings us to Casey, and Casey asks, "What is going on with EV prices? Tesla seems to be upping their prices at random. Meanwhile, Chevy took about four thousand dollars off the price of a Bolt when it updated the car." And Nissan quietly took around 5000 off the MSRP of a new Leaf, depending on the model, and was apparently trying to keep it a secret for some reason. Any idea where EV prices are headed in general and why they're suddenly moving around with ferocity and randomness? Gabe, can you, uh, can you give us a quick, uh, a quick hit on this? Well, the short answer is uh, supply and demand. And uh, Tesla can basically do whatever it wants because uh, it has uh, an audience uh, and it, there, there's a whole aura around the, the Tesla brand. So it's uh, it's almost a, a movement, uh, if you will. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, you have the Chevy Bolt and the Nissan Leaf, which are, uh, you know, they're, uh, with all due respect, were launched uh, in the days when, when manufacturers thought uh, electric vehicles were supposed to be um, very small and efficient uh, runabouts rather than uh, high-end, uh, sexy, high-tech, uh, stylish uh, fashion statements. So... Uh, so you have to discount these and uh, and in, in order to, to move them, even though the Chevy Bolt has a pretty robust range, uh, it's it's just not a it's it's not such a fresh car anymore at this point. Uh, and the Nissan Leaf, uh, second generation, uh, although it improved uh, over the first generation, but uh, you know it's not a car that uh, you you're gonna look at it and uh, you're gonna say to yourself, oh, gotta have it. Yeah, it definitely has a has a, a limited appeal and. and- very interesting point on the sense of the uh, style at the time of planning it and then where we're going with vehicles like the aforementioned Ionic 5 and futuristic uh, futuristic looks. So that's going to do it for this episode, though we do have a little bit of internal CR news. Tolly, Anatoly Shumsky, who edits in, uh, this, these episodes and, and does a lot of video shooting for us, his family has expanded by one. And that's the family that lets him come home at night, not, not us. We <laughs> haven't expanded by one. Um <laughs> So he is the proud father of a new baby boy. David Chomsky is a new member of the family, a big bouncing baby boy, and we congratulate him for that. Uh, and we also want to let everyone know that 
with the holidays coming up, with people taking time off for newborn babies, with people taking vacations and using it up, uh, we're going to make a change for the rest of 2021 for the episodes. There are, we're going to talk a little bit more about the cars and what's going on at the track, but the episodes will be shorter. So watch for that going for the rest of the remainder of 2021. Give us feedback. Tell us what you think about it, what you like, what you don't like. Um, you know, Let us know if, if that's something we should continue in a new year or uh, just for the time being. So that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for watching. Remember, send us questions to TalkingCars at iCloud.com. Keep on watching, and we'll see you next time. Buying a car, new or used, is often a disenchanting shopping experience. Common complaints revolve around paperwork, haggling, and not knowing if you are getting a good deal. Now, many buyers are moving online. Some surveys suggest that the vast majority of car shoppers are doing at least some research on the internet before purchasing a car, and more are moving beyond that into contacting dealers, securing financing, and even purchasing the car itself. A new crop of online services promises price transparency, short transactions, easy financing, vehicle delivery, and even the ability to return cars if it doesn't work out. The traditional uh, dealership model or the traditional peer-to-peer sales where a consumer might be selling or buying a car uh, from a stranger uh, is fraught with friction and, and a process that was you know, just begging to be disrupted. Some of these online-only vehicle vendors are growing quickly, but selling cars online is remarkably complex. And some research from the industry suggests many consumers still want to visit a dealership. It's finding this balance between making sure that we can grow as quickly as demand is growing, but make sure that while we do that, we continually deliver to customers the experiences that got us here in the first place and generated all that growth. But customers have shown they are willing to buy many things online, and tens of millions of new and used car sales take place every year. There is a lot of room to run. Consumers were not at all thrilled at the idea of a trip to the dealership, even before the COVID-19 pandemic. Less than 1% of people enjoy the dealership experience. Customers specifically have a lot of gripes about the paperwork, waiting, and haggling over prices. It is an intimidating process, one that many dread and fear. In 2014, industry research firm Edmonds found that only 20% of those surveyed liked the car buying process. Other data show that people don't trust car dealers and feel underprepared for negotiating. The biggest pain point when we asked those 25% customers who were happy and the 75 who had concerns said it's the element of price negotiation. So the fact that kind of pricing is inconsistent and it depends on my personal ability to negotiate. The only reason most shoppers go to a dealership is to see the car in person or test drive it. Consulting firm McKinsey had some interesting findings in a 2020 report. About 70% of the people surveyed said the main reason to go to a dealership is to see and touch the car. Fewer than half of consumers surveyed were confident the dealership salesperson could give them all the information they needed about a car. 72% do not feel the need to go through the financing process in person, and 55% said they would prefer to sign for the car and pay for it digitally. 
Many car buyers increasingly say they are not interested in shopping the way consumers have in the past. Of the consumers surveyed by McKinsey, about 50% of them said they are prepared to buy a car on the internet. About 40% of them said they liked the idea of a no-haggle price, where a price is set for a vehicle and no negotiating is involved. Easy one-click buying has proven irresistible. E-commerce behemoth Amazon notably started out selling books and other small inexpensive items that didn't need careful inspection by shoppers before purchase. About two decades ago, e-commerce had barely penetrated the furniture and appliance industries. But over the years, consumers easily transitioned from the online purchase of small items such as books to bulky big-ticket goods, including consumer durables like technology-rich appliances. It is only a matter of time before online car purchases become just as common. Will Clark is one of these shoppers. Co-founder of a startup that streams live events online, Clark said he shops for just about everything on the internet. Online shopping has been a part of my life the whole time, so uh, it, it's actually kind of weird that the car industry, to me, has been so slow to sort of embrace that. He and his wife decided to replace their SUV with a minivan in 2017, but both felt they were too busy to visit a dealership. He also has had some bad experiences with dealerships. The inventory shown on dealership websites often doesn't reflect what is actually in stock. And then the other thing uh, that I am very frustrated with dealerships about is um, the what I call the dance of the finance manager. You know, you talk to a salesperson and they don't want to ever give you the price that they're willing to sell you the car at. They want to negotiate some sort of monthly payment that you can afford and then get you into the most car that they can for that amount, which is not how I want to shop. And it's not really how I make financial decisions. Clark and his wife researched their vehicle entirely online, relying on websites and reviews. He knew what he wanted, down to the trim level and all of the options, and had already secured his financing through his local credit union. He has bought several cars in his lifetime already, new and used. The car buying process does not serve the customer very well, he says. Imagine you were buying a washing machine at Home Depot, and instead of just saying, hey, do you have a Home Depot credit card? They're like, can we get you into the washing machine you know, that you want to pay the monthly charge on? And then they tried to sell you like a different washing machine because they could finance one brand over the other more or something like that. That would Nobody would ever go to Home Depot again if that was how you bought an appliance there. In addition, internet retail businesses have made shopping especially fast and convenient with features like one-click buying and home delivery. Clark said he didn't really need to look at the vehicle in person. Honestly, I don't know the point of the test drive. Like, it's a brand new car. It's a Honda. I expect it to last for like 200,000 miles. I don't think there's going to be anything wrong um, the day that they bring it to us. And if there is... You know, in Oregon, there's a seven-day lemon law. Um, they have to fix it. Uh, and this program, you know, allows you to return the car within seven days anyway. The shift to online might be a secular one. Sales made up less than 1% of all used car sales in 2020. J.P. Morgan has estimated about 12% of all used car transactions will be online by 2030. The coronavirus pandemic has been supercharging the shift. From mid-May to early September 2020, more than a third of Americans surveyed by McKinsey said they would prefer shopping for a car via a website or mobile app rather than visit a dealership or even do business over the phone.
Exclusively online retailers have proliferated in recent years and include publicly traded companies such as Carvana and Vroom. Both names have seen a lot of success in a short amount of time. In just eight years, Carvana became one of the youngest companies to be admitted to the Fortune 500. Industry publication Automotive News ranks used car dealers every year in terms of volume. Carvana entered the list at number 8 in 2018. By 2019, it was number 4, and a year later, number 2, behind used car behemoth CarMax and ahead of two of the country's largest dealership groups, AutoNation and the Penske Automotive Group. Notably, Carvana is the only exclusively online used car vendor in the top 10. Rival Vroom was number 14 in 2020. It debuted on the NASDAQ exchange on June 9, 2020, and shares more than doubled on its first day of trading. Carvana's argument is that bad dealership experiences are a structural problem. The used car market is extremely fragmented, the cost of doing business is high, and there is not much to differentiate one dealer from another. So, the argument goes, used car dealers can only make money by squeezing customers. This is what produces the hours-long buying process and discussions many consumers find so stressful. It's time, it's effort, it's discomfort, it's uncertainty about whether or not they're getting a good deal. And that, to me, I reduce to, there's a stomachache afterwards. And I think the goal is, how do you build something that lets the customer get the new car and doesn't generate a stomachache? Carvana, Vroom, and similar businesses forego the storefronts and automate as much of the process as possible. Everything is self-service and available from anywhere 24 hours a day. Customers can search inventory, filter for certain attributes, and inspect vehicles virtually. Vroom shows an extensive list of pictures, while Carvana has a more deeply interactive viewing tool that bears some resemblance to those seen on manufacturer websites. Customers can rotate and zoom in on images of the vehicle's exterior and interior. Vroom and Carvana say their model allows them to keep a far larger inventory. The dealerships have, uh, what, 100 cars or 200 cars on their lot, where I think Vroom at the, at the end of our second quarter had nearly 14,000 cars. Uh, you know, in inventory on our on our website listed. Both companies also advertise transparent pricing and haggle-free sales, hoping to attract those customers eager to avoid negotiations. Garcia also said Carvana's cars will also likely be about $1,000 less than what customers would pay at a dealership. Shoppers can also use phones to upload needed documents and sign contracts online. The experience is very simple. You know, a customer can go through and they're in control the whole time. If they want to, you know, get a warranty, they click a button. If they don't want a warranty, they click that button off. If they want to trade in, same thing. Two minutes, they get a value. They can toggle that trade-in value on or off. They can get financing in two minutes. Once the purchase is finalized, a customer can either pick up the vehicle from a designated location or have it delivered. Exclusively online sellers like Carvana and Vroom don't have to make the same investments as conventional dealerships. The online self-service process allows these companies to reduce labor costs. They don't need conveniently located storefronts. But they have had to make other large investments, such as in reconditioning centers where they prepare vehicles for sales. Carvana also has large buildings it calls vending machines, where buyers can pick up their vehicles if they choose, slide a large coin into the slot, and the vehicle is fetched from among the stacks. These investments require Carvana spend more money than the dealer up front to build out infrastructure, but the heavily automated process leaves it with lower variable costs. This last quarter, we crossed over the point where those lower variable costs finally caught up and, and we had our first profitable quarter, which is a, a really cool thing to have done because it has taken a lot of time and a lot of effort by a lot of people to build this simple experience and to build that fixed cost structure that was necessary to deliver it.
Carvana executives have noted that 97% of used car transactions already involve some kind of online research. Investors and analysts take this as a sign that companies such as Carvana have a lot more room to grow. Vroom held a follow-on offering in September 2020 after its IPO and then raised another $550 million in debt in June 2021. Where are those investments going? They're going into the customer experience, whether it's upper funnel in our e-commerce model or in our, in our sales and sales operations flow, whether it's in our reconditioning uh, or reconditioning facilities so that we can make sure that you know, every car is exactly as we want it to be. Vroom has been investing in its own trucking fleet to carry cars around the country. But there have been some setbacks for each company. Carvana has been banned from selling cars in the Raleigh, North Carolina area until January 2022, after the State Department of Motor Vehicles said the company was failing to deliver titles for sold cars to the DMV, was selling vehicles without a state inspection, and issuing out-of-state temporary tags to a customer. Garcia told CNBC that the company is working with DMVs around the country to prevent similar situations in the future. Sometimes along the way there's, there's little bumps in the road, but we're not concerned about where that's going. The Better Business Bureau said in 2021 it had received 1,900 complaints about Vroom and gave the company an F rating as of early October. The only thing I'd say is, look, we want every customer, like any business, to be completely satisfied. And anytime any customer has to wait for any kind of documentation or payment or pickup or delivery of their car, that's simply not good enough. And so we've, we've committed an entire business to making sure that every single customer is satisfied and, and we won't rest until we get there. Cars are big, expensive purchases. In the second quarter of 2021, the average price of a used car in the U.S. topped $25,000 for the first time. Around the same time, the average transaction price for a new vehicle topped $42,000. Given this, a lot of consumers might still want to check out the vehicle in person before signing off. 71% of American shoppers in a Deloitte consumer survey said they would still want to buy their next vehicle in person. Another 12% said they would prefer a partially virtual experience, and 17% said they would go fully virtual. McKinsey found in a similar survey that around 60 to 80% of shoppers, depending on the consumer demographic, still see the test drive and physical interaction as an essential piece of the process. Car buying still has a very strong physical component similar to real estate and it's the second largest purchase for most people. And so the test drive or the physical interaction actually continues to play a really critical role in the buying process. The pandemic did force dealers and automakers to bring some of the dealership experience to the buyer, such as through at-home test drives. For example, the Cadillac brand began offering 24-hour trials for its cars. New cars have more drastic depreciation rate drops than used ones, so companies selling a used vehicle can allow a customer to hold on to it without worrying that the transaction will crater the vehicle's value. That makes it easier for Carvana and Vroom to offer seven-day return policies. There may be other obstacles to digital automotive sales in the new car market. For one thing, laws protecting dealers prevent automakers from selling directly to shoppers. So online new car sales are going to have to involve dealers, notwithstanding certain exceptions such as Tesla, who has no dealer network to protect. 
Another challenge might simply be the potential for competition among various digital car shopping businesses. It's not that there is necessarily a category killer that we have seen in other areas where there is one dominant player or one dominant source of information emerging, but most customers navigate anywhere from five all the way up to 25 different information sources to learn about the product. That includes manufacturer websites, classified and listing sites, enthusiast publications and portals, and financial websites. Entirely digital vehicle businesses also face the challenge of whether and how to serve the customer once the vehicle is purchased. Once you own a car, you have to maintain it, you might want to recondition it, you might want to repair it, you want to sell it. I think the digital players are doing a great job at a seamless initial sale and more and more at a reacquisition of the vehicle at kind of the end of ownership, also partially to um, establish and refill their own inventory. In the middle part, the customer is still left to their own devices. That also creates an opportunity for traditional dealers who can leverage physical assets and service businesses to reclaim some ground as customers move online. The one thing traditional dealers probably cannot do is simply continue as they have, with four-hour sales, long sits in the finance and insurance office, and a stressful negotiating process. We think that groups who can kind of establish themselves as haggle-free, easy transactions, seamless, um, they will be able to kind of gain market share together with the digital players and kind of companies who choose to not kind of accommodate where the customer sentiment is moving will, will likely lose share. Indeed, the better word for the car selling model of the future might be omnichannel, partially online and partially in person. The most effective retailer might be the one who is able to meet the customer wherever the customer is. Well, that is the end of our show for today. And if you have any questions or comments on anything you've heard, you can email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at Consumer Review Report and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. This is the Consumer Review Report on Tube City Online Radio, a service of Tube City Online, Tube City Community Media, Inc., this show is heard Sundays at 4 p.m., Tuesdays at 6 p.m., and Thursdays at 9 a.m. If you're not able to catch our regularly scheduled shows, podcasts of these shows are available on wmck.fm crr, iTunes, Google, iHeart, Spotify, and Spreaker. I'm Diane Rebecca, wishing everyone a safe and good week.